0: Hello, guys, and welcome back to the Triple F Podcast. Uh, This evening, I am very excited to be hosting with a guest. Uh, The one and only Victoria Falca is on our airways and our screen today, so I'll be recording for YouTube and for the usual Spotify podcast. Um, I have been excited about this podcast for a long time. Um, Someone with the mind of this absolute genius and pioneer in our industry uh, coming on to talk to you guys today. It, it just—it's mind blowing for myself. So I hope you guys are ready because we're about to go on a roller coaster. Victoria, introduce yourself.
1: Oh, thank you for that introduction. You're welcome. Um, introduce myself. So it's always a hard one for me, but I'm a researcher. Uh, so I'm a doctoral researcher. and um, specifically, my work is in sport medicine, looking at female athlete health. But to get to this point, you know, I've had to still study the male body. I've had to still study overall medicine. Um, my research specifically looks at the use of steroid hormones. And I use that term quite broadly because I do look at both the use of androgens, but then also estrogens and Um, So I look at those general kind of steroid hormones. And for listeners or viewers right away, you guys are going to hear that I try not to use terms like reproductive hormones or sex hormones, because that really doesn't describe what we're talking about, Um, and some people might go like, oh, that's semantics, but it actually does really change how we look at these hormones, how we talk about them, how they get prescribed, how they get managed, so I like to use those broad terms. Um, I I mean, I've been in weight training for, gosh, uh, uh, 17, 18 years now, so it's been a long journey, Um, and as a female in our industry, I've kind of been able to see the changes that have happened in the last like 15, 20 years, um, which is amazing because more and more women are now competing and training and really focusing on building muscle. But at the same time, I feel that the knowledge and the education to help support them is not there. We're kind of got this weird leg happening. Um, So on one hand, love it. I mean, it's phenomenal to be able to see you know, I always joke around saying like, I'm the from the pre-DLB era when it wasn't okay for women to be in the gym, where you were honestly, typically the only female in the weight room. And now it's, I mean, the, the numbers are growing and that's so amazing, but it's also so scary um, because just that knowledge gap is vast. And as a result, there's a lot of individuals that aren't getting the care and the support that they need. Um, to be able to do this journey as, as healthy as they can or just in a realistic way. Um so yeah, that's a bit of my background. I can keep going, but I don't want it to turn into this huge like song and dance. No, so that,
0: that literally is perfect because i um, I say eighty to ninety percent of the audience are females who are just starting their journey in the gym or starting their journey into kind of competing in bodybuilding or advanced bodybuilders looking onto mm-hmm. becoming pros. So uh, when I first heard you on uh, John Jewett's podcast, I was just taken back instantly because I've been saying for as long as I can remember that the the females looking to get into bodybuilding now is becoming more and more prominent, but the education and guidance and support that backs that for the females who are looking to go down say the enhanced route is just not there. There just seems to be so much more out there for males. Um, it just seems to be discussed so much more and it doesn't seem to be that same level. It almost still seems very taboo, um, that people aren't allowed to talk about it. Or as soon as someone mentions females, um, looking at going into bodybuilding or enhanced bodybuilding, it's almost like, Oh no, you can't talk about that. Um, and you know, I, as soon as I was listening to you, I was like, this is someone that needs to be heard more. And it, it instantly, as soon as I heard you, I was like, right, this is someone I want on one of my podcasts so that I can get another voice out there because obviously There are educators out there that are doing it, but there just doesn't seem to be that many. So when I found another one, I wanted to chat about it.
1: I appreciate that. So, you know, I guess that's part of my own story is that I was a female athlete. I was a ballet dancer growing up and I went through a really chaotic hormonal circumstance when I was 18 Um, and it was you know, I was stuck in that world of like, well, what do I do? Um, Doctors didn't know what to do with me because I, you know, I was a young, healthy, active female. And so it it didn't make sense what was happening to me, but I was weight training and, you know, right away, like getting those labs back and like your, your CK is through the roof and your (laughs) liver enzymes are messed up, but not because it's your liver. It's because you trained a double the day before. Mm -hmm. Um, And so kind of going through this world being like, well, what, you know, what is going on? And there was some very crazy things going on that kind of goes back to why I study what I do today. Um, But part of it for me was that my, my androgens rapidly changed um, naturally. So my endogenous androgens just went through the roof because I hadn't actually gone through puberty properly. Um, And so all of a sudden I was being accused of being on anabolic androgenic steroids. And as a young 18 year old, like I really didn't understand everything that went into that because I mean there wasn't social media back then it wasn't like I, I was reading muscle mags that the old gym guys brought in for me because I was just like so hungry to learn everything I could about bodybuilding so of course I saw these like ads in the back of like muscle mag and flex and md for like horse and veterinary like steroids from the 90s and I yeah. so I like had this weird hazy idea and then those social conceptions too about like you know, I mean, I remember going to the gym once with my dad at like 16, and he was like, Oh, yeah, the juice monkeys. And so, like, you know, I had this weird idea, but then myself being this young female, being, you know, accused of being on X, Y, and Z, and being like, What does that even mean? And then going to the library, learning more. Cause I was just so hungry for knowledge. Yeah. And, and I, you know, in that period of time, I actually realized that in many ways it was a compliment because I was getting told that I looked, you know, jacked and strong and all these things I wanted to be. But then in the medical system, being completely, you know, accused of being on certain compounds that I didn't even know what they were at the time, um, or being accused of, um, closet eating or, uh, binging and, and everything else because my weight was just completely climbing without any fault of my own because of this hormonal environment. So it really pushed me to begin to explore the concepts of like, what does it mean to be a female? What does it mean to be a female athlete? What does it mean to have these different types of hormonal kind of fluctuations or changes, whether we're talking about endogenous or exogenous and how can we learn? Um, Because I started to get more active in the fitness community, especially like in my 20s and going like, "There's, there's such parallels between certain natural hyper androgenic states where women will have high levels of androgens and what you see in women that are using androgenic and you know, anabolic androgenic compounds. So I really, in, in 2016, came out with a couple models to begin to, to explore this more. Uh, and luckily, I mean, Ken and he's the founder of the Swiss Symposium, which is an amazing event, gave me a platform back then to start to talk about this. And really that kind of kicked off my journey of like doing podcasts and stuff like this. But as I'm also still writing my PhD, there's only so much public uh education i can do so i'm very grateful that you've given me that platform today
0: no you're more than welcome more than welcome i could not have you on and um it's it's not the the thing that kind of like struck me as well is it's not that you've just gone away and you've educated but you've also lived it as well you've you've lived it you've educated and you've also applied it within practice so you know it's not just someone who has dedicated time to just reading through books you've done all walks of life through it you know you've Helped athletes, you've done it to yourself, and then you've also gone away and educated yourself. So, you know, I I find that the people that you should be listening to are the ones that live, eat, and breathe it, right? So, you know, listening to your podcast, like I said with John, um, you know, you've gone through kind of experiences that you had or um, situations with athletes or coming away from that and applying it to other cohorts within, say, not just bodybuilding, but training as well. It it makes sense, so much sense to have you on here to. uh, Just bring some awareness because kind of going back to what you said as well, it's not just the females that are looking to go enhanced. It's also females that just don't understand their own cycles because I've I've had clients that come to me as well. And some of the first questions I ask, you know, if if someone's looking to take bodybuilding seriously is what are your plans after bodybuilding? You know, are you looking at children? Are you looking at, um, you know, things that could potentially be impacted from bodybuilding? And they're kind of like, well, why, why is this important? And I was like, it. of course, it is, it's massively important. And when you start like delving into information about their cycle, they just, it's almost like they have no idea. They don't know. They just kind of roll with the punches each month to month. So, you know, kind of listening to what you were saying and having the female kind of make sure they're fully aware about everything that's going on, not only leads to like a healthier background, but also more progressive and more positive in regards to bodybuilding as well
1: oh absolutely you know as as women we've been i mean i can get to the whole like social and cultural side of this but at the end of the day it's we have not been educated about the the female menstrual cycle and what education we have been is been very much skewed um from things like the pharmaceutical industry i mean the use of hormonal contraceptives has really skewed the language even the use of like sanitary products and the marketing that you kind of indoctrinated into growing up and that it's taught us that the bleed is this, this, you know, the grand finale of your monthly cycle. And if you don't have the bleed, well, oh, it's, you know, it's terrible. And oh, but if you have it, it's annoying and it's, you know, unhygienic and all this other BS. And, And it's completely ignored the fact that, The bleed can happen with so many different underlying hormonal circumstances. Um, It can happen from so many different underlying kind of physiological environments that aren't all conducive to, like, big air quotes here, like, health. Um, And so the bleed is not this marker of what it means to be a healthy female. Um, And that when we think of, like, what does that menstrual cycle represent, even some of the new apps that are out there for menstrual cycle tracking, they're not actually educating women on like, Hey, the bleed is one piece of a very complicated, very complicated physiological process that's influenced by our social world, our psychological state and our physiological or biological state. It is such a chaotic, just, I mean, network of all these different things working together. Um, it's not linear. It's not the same every month, even if you bleed, let's say every, 28 days, the actual environment of your body and, and where your hormones go every month will vary. And that's okay. You know, what human beings are meant to vary day to day, hour to hour. It's when things really start to go um, go astray that we need to start investigating that. And unfortunately, women don't get taught what it means for things not to be going the way that they're going. And so they kind of willfully accept that, hey, every month I've got terrible cramps, but I just have to live with it. It's like, no, you don't. know, yes. your menstrual cycle shouldn't be completely um, destructive. You shouldn't have your entire life have to get put on hold for that You know, last two weeks or that week of your bleed or whatever it might be. Um, it, really, the menstrual cycle, it is an important physiological part of, I mean, of how our bodies work because we're making our steroid hormones, you know, if it's going, you know, everything is going the way that it should be. And so you know, on the other side of the conversation, just stopping it and and going through whether it's a hormonal contraceptive route or, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s hysterectomy route, because it's not the way that you want it to be or it should be, that's also not the solution because there's problems with that too. So that, you know, and I think especially within our industry, I think I you know honestly, I think things are changing that there's at least a bit more conversation about it. When I was, you know, started training and got more serious into bodybuilding, not having a bleed was almost this like sign of like, significance like it was like great you're either lean enough oh you're you're training hard enough or oh it's annoying you don't want to have that anyways it really messes up day like, or whatever people used to say i think now at least we're starting to like the discourse is starting to change maybe a little bit but i also am fearful that it's not changing in a positive direction either because it's kind of just shooting out these generalized statements or these blanket statements without actually educating women on on what what it is
0: I fully agree. And it's, it's exactly like you say, like throughout a contest prep, for example, a female loses their cycle. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting lean. This is supposed to happen. Um, it's not, but yes, you can almost come to expect it, but there's a lot more going on there. And this is another thing as well. The, the detail that you've gone into in regards to the female cycle, there are so many more things at play that people don't realize. And I think if females understood each section of their cycle, what it does, why it's there, what's actually happening, what's being produced, why it's being produced, then I think maybe there's almost not like a a level of respect for that hormonal change that needs to be there. And the same when it comes into like a prep, for example, Um, a female nine times out of 10 now, because it's more spoken about, will go into the prep and say, okay, well, there's probably going to be a point that I lose this, but I'll deal with that afterwards. And then I've also seen that post-show it's not dealt with afterwards and it continues to get worse and worse and worse.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, the menstrual cycle, and, and this is where I think we have to be careful because it's, it's the ovulatory menstrual cycle. It's, it's when a woman ovulates and irregularly ovulates with a sufficient duration of ovulation. And so for ovulation, for any listeners or viewers that don't know, um, it's that middle point in the cycle it's a marker of fertility. So, you know, a lot of women who may have gone through um, wanting to conceive or any issues with conceiving, they, they'll they probably know what ovulation is because that's something that gets kind of drilled into that conception world. But when it, you know, outside of conception world, it is an incredibly important marker of a creator. So it, it not only is a creator of women's health, but it's also an indicator. So if you're regularly ovulating, it's an indication that things are where they need to be in terms of your internal and external health. Um, it also is going to promote and create health. Um, it's required to make sufficient amounts of progesterone, which progesterone is one of the master steroid hormones in the female body. Um, it's, the, it's the yang to the yang of estrogens. And so we have to have this balance between the two. Um, and what, if we go like another step further, it's, it's happened. So how we make progesterone is through this process of ovulation. Um, and ovulation is when the, the egg or the ovum, which is in your ovary gets released from the follicle. Um, and if it's not inseminated, then it will burst and create this flux of progesterone. And so not every time you bleed, this will happen. It, it should happen regularly, but a lot of times, particularly in the athletic population, there is either what is an anovulatory cycle, meaning that you had a bleed without ovulation or a silent ovulatory disturbance, which means that not enough progesterone was produced or it was not produced for long enough. You want to have progesterone being produced for about half the duration of your cycle so that it will last you until the next time you ovulate. And so in the athletic population, there's this really high rate of um, silent ovulatory disturbances or anovulation. And that causes problems over time because as women, we need to have progesterone for our bones and our brains. It's cardioprotective, it's metabolic protective, our, our thyroid health. So it's so much more than just like this fertility hormone, just like estradiol, we have to have sufficient levels of it, not too high, not too low. Um, and that we're not supposed to have these like flatlined hormones. There's this ebb and this flow that we are, um, that, that makes for a healthy physiological environment. Um, and that it is more than just like, Oh, Hey, your body fat levels. Like, you know, you can be amenorrheic from having high body fat levels. You can be amenorrheic from low body fat levels. And there's so many different types of Hormonal activity that can be going on on the inside when you are amenorrheic, and it's important to explore that more. And I think that one of the best tools that we can give as coaches or educators to women is, you know, track your menstrual cycle and and don't become hyper fixated or hyper focused on it because ebb and flow is normal. We're we're all human, but things like using the basal metabolic temperature, which is your morning temperature, first thing in the morning. You can use a thermometer under your tongue as long as it goes to two decimal places. There's new technologies called TempDrop, which is like an armband, so you don't even need to use a thermometer. There's certain like um, the, the different types of rings or even Apple watches that can do this as well. But because progesterone increases our temperature, if you ovulate, your temperature is going to go up in that second half your cycle. So it's re- I mean it's an amazing tool because this allows us to see like hey. Where's your health at? And like you said, you know, losing a, your menstrual cycle during a prep is not abnormal. And I have to say, like one of my one of my biggest kind of mentors and idols in the women's kind of reproductive and endocrinology world, she really charged this kind of front, going that female athletes, there is you know this give and this take that we need to acknowledge that not everybody is going to be able to sustain their menstrual cycle and their ovulatory capacity. During periods of very high stress, whether we're talking about physiological, like training hard and dieting or psychological stress or social stress. And that it's the responsibility though of, of us to not let this happen for too long because yeah. there are repercussions. And so if it happens for three months, but you get it back, awesome. If it happens for six months and it's a little bit of a shake, you're to get it back. Well, know that it, it's going to be easier for you than to lose it again. Um, it's, it's something that's called the, a resilience factor or or a hypothalamic pituitary ovarian resilience. And, and that if you were say put on the pill at a young age and you were on it in that first seven to 10 years after you went through puberty. So the first bleed is called menarche. So if you started that, that hormonal contraceptive or you lost it for like your menstrual cycle for a prolonged period of time in that first seven to 10 years, then your resilience factor is not going to be the same as somebody who didn't have that happen to them because that roadway, that information network literally didn't get an opportunity to get built. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a female competitor, let's just say who was on the pill at 13 after her first bleed, maybe she only had two bleeds and then went off at 26. Cause her coach tells her that like, Hey, this, you need to come off it to get lean. Like don't expect to get a bleed back right away. Like rushing into a prep is not going to be, the best scenario for you, or mixing in other types of PEDs, that's not going to be the best scenario for you. Because I think one piece of the conversation that's really missed right now in the female PED conversation, communication discourse, whatever we want to call it, is the fact that estradiol specifically, so there's different types of estrogens, but estradiol specifically and progesterone are incredibly important to help manage and mitigate some of the negative outcomes associated with anabolic androgenic steroids. And so if you are running, let's say, low estrogen and low progesterone, and then you just slam yourself with a bunch of androgens, there is more likely for repercussions to occur, whether that's endometrial hyperplasia, meaning that your endometrium thickens, or the presence of ovarian cysts, or even some of those more androgenic outcomes like hair growth and voice changes and acne and, and oily skin, because progesterone and estradiol are incredibly important to be balanced with androgens. Um, it's so important. And, and that is just so lost in our community. Um, because I think almost progesterone and estrogen, just to get kind of like Oh, they're just women's sex hormones. They are not important to get jacked. It's like, no, they actually are really important to get jacked and lean. Yeah. And really like, important.
0: This is the thing, like, they, they get slammed, but they don't just get slammed in, in, in females, they get slammed in males as well. Like,
1: absolutely. As
0: long as I remember, it was like, oh, yeah, you want your estrogen as low as possible because it's a female derived hormone. But for some reason, then when you apply that to a female, Why does it still have the same negative context? Like all hormones would need to be level, would need to be balanced. If they needed to be elevated, they need to be elevated accordingly, not just assume that because this is a female-derived hormone, it needs to be smashed into the ground. And Mm -hmm. testosterone being the most anabolic is the one that we need to elevate. Um, And this kind of, again, was um, one of the things that I really kind of like clung onto when when you were talking in the podcast is that you were saying that these all need to be elevated according to what we're seeing back or what the feedback is and you know one thing that I've kind of noticed through my own coaching or my own time kind of educating and observing is that people are very quick to kind of direct a female to an androgen based kind of PD so Anavar was crowned like the the female drug of choice but it it completely contradicts what we're saying here and You know, obviously what we're saying here is everything does need to be balanced. You can't balance things with running 10 milligrams of Anabar per day, you know? Yes, the... Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so complicated. Yeah. Like, that's the thing, is it's so complicated. Like, I you know, going back to that idea of resilience. So if you have a woman who's had like steady eddy regular ovulatory menstrual cycle her whole life. And she's, let's say 24 years old coming to you, you know, 10 milligrams of anavar may or may not have a impact right away, at least on her ovulatory cycle. I have seen in practice. And I mean, there's no textbook for this stuff. One of the things we know is that when the environment outside the ovaries gets higher, in the environment, inside the ovaries of hormone production, then the ovaries are more likely to just be like, peace out. I'm done. Like you got enough going on. Don't care if you're aromatizing or not. Like you're good. I'm done. You know, that is more likely to happen when somebody's already not producing the right hormonal milieu or the hormonal, hormonal environment, pardon me. And, um, you know, with, with Anavar specifically, what we know is that yes, it can impact, an individual's hormonal milieu but the longer you're on it and the higher you're on it you're going to see potentially more of that happening whereas if it is very low and short duration of time you may not see the same repercussions and i use language like may not cuz there is no one size fits all like you just don't know the the potential benefit to using something like anavar is is that you are having more of that androgenic element then or pardon me, anabolic element. Oh gosh, big taboo. Anabolic yeah. element than that androgenic element. And because androgenic responses are often the ones that cause those unintended impacts of virilization and hair growth and everything else, um, that, that when used in a short like a short acting drug that you can discontinue relatively quickly. If you start to see these negative things come up is going to have potential benefits to somebody versus say utilizing in a long acting ester of testosterone or something like that. Um, you know, with that said, there, there just is no one size fits all to female and PED use. There's no like one protocol that everybody can use because we're all coming to it in a different place. I mean, if we look at, I think, a male equivalent, um, you know, why do some women get, let's say, virilization and other women don't? Well, why do some men bald prematurely on an androgen and some men don't? Yeah. Why do some men get, like, crazy amounts of even hair growth and thickening on secondary and some men don't? Why do some men grow, like, weeds on 200 milligrams of test per week and some men that doesn't even cause anything yeah right we're all different and we all come state. into this in a different place we are not blank slates mm-hmm.
0: and, and and this is exactly you hit the name on the head um i think too many people whether that be um a competitor or whether it be a coach i think they're trying to cram everything into one box or one size fits all now whether that's from lack of education or whether that's from just being naive to what's going on, or or, or potential just laziness, um, it does seem to be that it's just here. Take some anavar, take it for this long, and as you said, like you might be lucky enough to get away with it for a yeah. period of time, but it's the duration, and and how many people are going to be able to say take this duration of anavar, see really positive production and really positive results, and go, I'm done now. It <laughs> doesn't it doesn't really happen, you know. You'll see people see incredible results and they'll go, oh. Well, that worked very well for that long, so let's see if I can do it again. And yeah. then potentially take more, which then it's it's been creeping up and building over this period of time mm-hmm. and you know, once that cup fills and you've taken that last drop, it starts overflowing A realization does happen, there is no going back from that. And mm-hmm. you can't tell when that cup's gonna fill up. There there is nothing mm-hmm. to say. You know, you can you can track on a voice app or you can, you know, take pictures, say like to make sure you're mm-hmm. keeping track of like say clip or enlargement, but mm-hmm. if that drip overflows the cup from there. There is no going back. And then everything from there is virilization.
1: Yeah. Not only that is that, again, this goes back to like, what are your own endogenous hormones doing at that time? Mm. Like the longer you've been an then now you don't have, so progesterone has a really cool um, anti-androgenic effect on certain cell types. So for skin and hair growth, for example. So the longer you've gone without having progesterone and then you also have that androgen in the mix, well, then you're more likely to get yourself into trouble because your protection is no longer there. Or if you start you know, throwing in... Um, let's just say, um, receptor sensitivity, if somebody was, say, on the pill for a long period of time, and the particular contraceptive that they were on was a potent anti-androgen, well, we don't know, like, research has not figured out yet, is this going to cause a hypersensitivity to the androgen receptor, meaning that they're just thirsty, and whatever you throw in the mix is going to just, like, grow like a weed or is this going to create an insensitivity meaning that you know more may be needed to elicit the response that's desired um we don't know yet and that's the thing that i think a lot of people don't necessarily understand is like who you were before you decided to go on a certain drug impacts that drug um just like who you want to be moving forward is going to impact that drug the longer you're on it, the other cofactors in place, the higher your stress levels are socially or psychologically, the more other kind of comorbidities or issues going on. All of these things change how these drugs are working in your body. Like, like I said, we are not blank slates. Um, and, and that's something that I think with bodybuilding, we fall into this trap of like the controls, like because bodybuilding, you know, coming from a science background, bodybuilding to me is a giant experiment. Like you have, like it goes back to basic, like first year chem where it's like, you have that plant in that cup and you start looking at like, how am I going to make this plant grow? Okay. We put in an environment with, you know, one with sun, one without sun, one with water, one without water. So all that is variable control. Yeah. Um, and that bodybuilding, if you think about what it's been for many, like a long time, the conversation has been, I call it like the box phenomenon where you go, okay, I've got training in this box. And if I train, I'm going to build muscle. And then I've got diet in this box. And if I eat right, um, I'm going to grow muscle and lose fat. Okay. And then I've got cardio in this box because you know, weights and cardio have often been split as if they're two different worlds altogether. And that cardio is what's needed for fat loss. Okay. And then I've got this box that's like PEDs and then, you know, walk away from that. Like these are the, and with these four things, I can control exactly what I want my body to do. And if I am, you know, 30 pounds overweight and not very muscular, I'm going to get shredded in 16 weeks with these four magic boxes. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> like it is it did, so now. much more complicated. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and this is where like, I say this to clients all the time. I was like, you've got internal factors, but you've also got so many external factors that you can't control from day to day that will impact everything. If your neighbors are banging on the wall at three o'clock in the morning, you can't sleep that's that's not in a box that you can control like you can maybe go to another room but you're not going to sleep very well like yeah. these are all variables that are going to impact
1: oh not only that i mean it's it we are you know various alterations and adaptations occur in our lifetime with our physiological function and when you know one of the questions that when i work with individuals and, and talk about like educate on this stuff i, I always get people to think like you know Are you healthy? Yes or no? So many people, female, male, elite competitor versus thinking about competing. Like, are you healthy? And most people be like, yes. And I go, okay, no, like, let's really talk about this. Because health isn't just the merely, like, the the absence of illness. Just because you're not sick or you don't have um, hypothyroidism, like some diagnosis, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthy. Because health is not just our physical body we have, I I mean, I ascribe to the the idea of the biopsychosocial model of health, which means that we have biological health, but we also have psychological health. And then we also have social health. And these things are interconnected. You know, they are completely interwoven with each other. And that, you know, some beautiful examples of like how our psychological health impacts our biological health is, I mean, the physical manifestations of anxiety and depression. I mean, what's the root cause of irritable bowel syndrome? It's anxiety. It's It's a somatic expression. Or with an obligatory cycles, the fact that you can induce them just by having body image dissatisfaction. Not dieting, not overtraining, just that dissatisfaction. And that often we, you know, by the time we're in our 30s, we've lived a life. Um, Or we're in our 40s, or even for some people in their 20s. Um, And that doesn't factor in, I mean, your genetic basis that doesn't factor in early childhood experience Um, because we, we all are dynamic individuals. All of us are, and and we can obviously, you know, improve our health state, Mm -hmm. but if you're, you know, you sit back at the end of the day and you go, okay, am I healthy? Yes or no. If the answer is no, why or why not? And what can I do? You know, are there certain things that are completely like this is the way they are now? Great. Let's work with that. But if there are things we can do, like we should be doing them. And then the second thing is like, what is your current health state and how is this going to be influenced by say competition prep or PED use? And then how is it going to be, how is it going to influence it? So not only how are we going to be impacted by it, but then how is prep going to influence it? Uh, So an example of this would be, let's say you you have hypothyroidism and it's managed in your pre-prep state, and then you go into a contest prep situation. Well, how is having hypothyroidism going to be influenced by prep? Are you going to need more medication to manage because your stress, physiological, psychological, social are going to go way up? And we know stress has a massive impact on thyroid function. And then also how is it going to impact your prep outcomes? Is it going to make it harder for you to get leaner? Is it going to change your, you know, hormonal resilience factor? And that's something that's so lost in our world right now because people aren't asking themselves these hard questions. Like, do you sleep well pre-prep? Because don't expect that to get better when you start prepping. Do you have a healthy relationship with food? Are you somebody who's formerly struggled with disordered eating or any type of eating disorder? Don't expect that that's going to be totally kosher during your prep. Like, it's just, that's not what most people are going to experience. Now, maybe you are, but for most people, there's going to be these small triggers. I mean, an alcoholic typically doesn't voluntarily go into a bar, even when they're advanced in recovery for a reason. You just don't take it So away. you. Pardon me? You
0: just don't take the risk to It's something. You no, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, like, and then even things like medication use. Like, I can't, so part of my, you know, my research and my whole world is in things called, like, pharmacodynamics or pharmacokinetics. So how do drugs actually talk with other drugs? And this is another thing that gets totally lost in our world. Is like, okay, if you're utilizing a certain drug or say you used a certain drug for a long period of time and now you're off of it how is that going to influence the drugs that you want to take to be able to compete? Yep. There is an interaction. There is a relationship with that. I mean, if you're say on a blood pressure medication or a uh, high blood pressure, and now you're introducing Climbuterol in the mix, like there is an interaction with these things and that's more of an outcome interaction. There's also metabolic interactions. Like it is quite complicated. And I think, you know, I've been poo-pooed in the past by people going like, Oh, you overcomplicate things. And I'm like, no, it's complicated. Like, why should we pretend that it is really simple when it's it's not? Um, it is really complicated, and that you know your pre-existing health conditions, uh, your future health outcomes that you want, or just other stressors—all of those things are going to influence your prep outcomes. Um, and, and then you know the other big question here comes: like, what what are you going to do about it? Because I think a lot of people might recognize, like, hey, you know, I've got acne and uh, it's not great, but I really want to prep, and so let's just focus on prep. Or, hey, I have you know a negative relationship to food, but I really want to get my pro card this season. They sometimes will recognize these things, but then they don't take action on them.
0: Yeah. and uh, this is, it mm-hmm. Why? Like it, like the, the athlete, what I would say, becomes like the ostrich where they bury their head in the sand. And uh, I've seen so many times where... Um, an athlete feels that prep is the answer to their problems. Like I've had athletes that are really struggling with diet or really struggling to stay focused on a diet where they might be having like binging tendencies and I hear, I just need to get back into prep or I'm really struggling with my body image right now. I'm really struggling with how I look. I'll be fine when I get into prep. Like why why, why is it prep creates this magical fix where like you say, it's not going to fix anything. If anything, it's just going to, uh, it, it like the problems that you've got and cause more issues further down the line and this is where I tend to see as well like females will do back to back prep season after season after season and it tends to be because you know maybe they're just avoiding the things that need working on or maybe it is now social media has glorified kind of the leaner more aesthetic physique because it gets more likes or it gets more attention or it's something that is more advantageous than you know, the other side of bodybuilding, which is is the health side. Is Like you say, Mm -hmm. I I love the fact that you touched on um, the health side of not just, you know, are you healthy, but what's your lifestyle like? Is your lifestyle healthy? Are you socializing with people? Are you, you know, looking after all aspects of health? And I think bodybuilders as a cohort, I think, you know, pretty much the rule of thumb, we probably all suffer a little bit with like social kind of interactions because you only really... And obviously I'm speaking quite broadly here, but I'd say the vast majority of us only really socialize with bodybuilders. We all have set routines where we wake up and eat and train all at set times. It can make social events quite difficult. And there are aspects of what we do that are very unhealthy. So not taking time away from the more controlled sides such as preps, not taking time away from food focus or, or body image focus is going to create such a negative impact, which... Mm-hmm. later down the line because bodybuilding is not there forever there, there will come a time where we do decide to hang up the bikini or hang up the trunks and say right okay you know what's next for me and, and then what what, what have mm-hmm. you built or what have you got left after that
1: oh absolutely and like you know, I remember it was years ago now, I forget what podcast it even was, but they asked me like, if you were to take out a billboard, like, what would you put on it? And I always ask myself that because I think it changes, my message changes at different times. But I think right now more than ever, if I could take out a billboard, like, what would it say is contest prep is not the time to get healthy. Yeah, I have seen so many people that approach it like that. Like, oh, I'll get my labs done before I start prep. Oh, well. And I'm like, why? It's too late then to fix whatever is going on. Yeah. Like that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Um, or, oh, you know, I'll get my schedule together. Oh, I'll start prepping my food or, you know, I work better with routines and I go like, well, why can't you do a routine right now? Like, why do we need this extrinsic goal? Um, and you know, another thing you touched on was like the, the back to back. And I have, a, I have a, an amazing colleague of mine, um, Dr. Michael Miltek, and he does a lot of, uh, I mean, he's a neuro psychiatrist a phenomenal human being, but one of the things that he's talked about is just the dopamine. Like when we are in an overtrained state, that alters our brain chemistry, and that actually makes us more likely to engage in an, wanting to be in an overtrained state. It's like a cycle that we get in, um, and then you add in other parts of contest prep or dieting or drug use, and it just kind of perpetuates that that hamster wheel of sorts. Um, and, and the you know the end result is this like really unhealthy state. And, you know, competitive bodybuilding at the end of the day is an extreme sport. And that competitive bodybuilding is not the same as recreational bodybuilding. Even if you want to say, be um, like a leaner body composition, then what your body is typically, you know, set point is, it doesn't mean that you can't achieve that, but that look is still very different than what you stand on stage with. Like there is the, the competitive bodybuilding is extreme. Like it is, if you look in more of like the kind of sociology of sport literature, like they compare it to like your pair or with an example, like bungee jumping or um, like downhill ski racing in the dark kind of thing. Like it's, it's dangerous. Um, and there's a reason for that is because we're not just talking about this like leisurely event, this leisurely sport. um, And that it's one thing I think I've had to settle with, with my own journey is that I will always be a recreational bodybuilder. I will never be a competitive bodybuilder because I just don't have the resources required to be a competitive bodybuilder, nor do I want to create those resources or give those resources. Um, Not only is my, my health, uh, a big piece of that, but just the the psychological, the sociological, coming from having an eating disorder background, it's just not aligned with who I am and who I want to be, and that's okay. You know, there are certain kind of like the the, the zealots of the world to go like, "Oh, you're only a bodybuilder if you compete." I think that's bullshit. Um, I think you're a bodybuilder if you're using regimented, regular aerobic activity, weight training, and a nutrient dense diet to develop an intentional physique, whether that's lean or muscularity or a combination of both or strength. It's that intentional. You're not just, you know, willy-nilly going and training two days a week here and there. It's it's the intention is such a big part of yeah. the bodybuilding journey. And that if we think of just that, I mean, that's phenomenal for health. I mean, they're across the board, blood pressure, uh, the body composition, oxidative capacity, immune system, cognitive. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. The flip side though is competitive bodybuilding. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, you can well, maybe in the first bit of prep or if you're kind of just dappling your toes in it. But when you get further into that pursuit of competitive bodybuilding, there, it, it, there's more diminishing returns to it. Um, and, and it is temporary. It's meant to be temporary. Instagram has done nothing good for our world of competitive bodybuilding in terms of creating a realistic expectation of what, people are capable of when you're recycling old photos or using Photoshop or um, just all that kind of like s- snake oil stuff that yeah, that I don't like social media for that purpose. But um, I-, I feel like there's this toxicity that's going on now with that. Just like there's a bit of toxicity, I think too with like just bodybuilding itself mm-hmm. and what it takes. I mean, my husband and I talked about this the other day about I am so grateful for all of those years in the gym, not having a flipping clue what I was doing because I learned so much about training. I learned like, you know, I remember being 18, 19. So I was, so I got sick at 18. So it would have been like later half of 18, 19, like doing German volume training and thinking that like this is going to be awesome. I mean, crap. I was a full-time university student who had a crappy health. German volume training like destroyed me in the first week, but I tried it. Yeah. I remember printing off workouts, um, utilizing the workouts you see in magazines just to learn like these different styles of training, mm-hmm. um, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, to learn what progressive overload was to train for strength, train for power, to really like harness the pursuit of weight training because that is a, that's an important part of bodybuilding. Yeah. But I feel like right now people are getting lost because they're not playing in the gym, they're not learning for themselves, yeah. they're just following you know this particular paradigm of training and not recognizing that hey, that might not even work for you. I couldn't and
0: agree more. I couldn't agree more. That's okay. Yeah.
1: It's just you got to find what does. And,
0: and, and that's it. And I, I find that Instagram, again, is partly to blame for this because you have these influencers that come on and, and show these, like, subpar workouts that they're doing to try and get followers and say, this is how I built this physique to earn this trophy. They're not doing that. But the individual is kind of hooked on this Instagram image and it's like, right, that's what it takes. Oh, okay, and now I pair this with some performance-enhancing drugs. Six months, I can become an IFBB pro, like... I have people consult with me all the time. I was, uh, my goal is to be an IFBB pro. And I'm like, fabulous. How much training experience have you have? I've been training for about three months. And I'm like, okay, like we need to wind this back a little bit because your training experience for three months is probably not even close to what it's going to take to even get to a regional show, let alone IFBB standards. And I think this is the the, the sad thing that's now happening to bodybuilding through social media is that everything is becoming far more accessible than what it actually
1: is. Um, and oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what other sport can you buy your way into halfway through life yeah. to become a professional? That's bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a commercial transaction that you're engaged in and that you can come later in life into. You don't see that in football or rugby or swimming or gymnastics. I mean, it, it's a it's a very unique sport because it, it makes it accessible, yep. but not for the right reasons. Um, you know, it, I love the idea of inclusivity and accessibility and all that other stuff, but let's really talk about should everybody who's competing be competing? Do they have what it takes, or are they using drugs to? Gain this kind of false overload that then is going to destroy them, yeah. you know, six months down the road um, because they don't actually have what it takes. And when I talk about genetics, I, I, you know, it's not just like, oh, that person has wide clavicles or, oh, that person's got narrow hips. Like, it's not just your structure that could make you potentially better for competing in a certain category. In genetics are, I mean, number one, it's a complicated thing. We know so little about it. Number two, when I talk about genetics, it's not just like the genes. It's also the epigenetics. Can Do you have the capacity to deal with physiological stress? Do you have the stress buffering? And there's like a ton of different genes behind this. Do you have you know, certain genes that maybe make it so you do have higher levels of of natural testosterone or certain um, responses to blood glucose or insulin or um, capacity for metabolizing certain things better within the gallbladder, certain like It is so, so complicated. And the people that have it, have it. I I mean, we all know those people that, you know, can perform at the elite level of IFBB pro-bodybuilding for multiple years, continue to get better, be able to stay relatively lean in their off-season, not have any negative overall health consequences, and they just keep grinding away. And they have that, I don't. I never will. And that's okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I have acceptance. But I also recognize just how much it takes. And honestly, it's only through working with the best of the best that I've been able to really begin to see things and be like, I was not expecting your labs to look this good. And being like, there's a reason for this. Like you have that it factor that so many other people want, but you don't cultivate that just through getting your sleep on point. Yep. Or uh taking an extended off season. Like this is what is innate to why you are one of the best of the best.
0: Exactly. And that's it. There are there are in you know some people will hate to admit it and some people will refuse to believe it, but there are people that are just generally made for this. And like you said... Oh, absolutely. You you know, there there should be individuals that you look at, say, like you say, blood results or, you Mm. you know, you look at their physique after what they've been through in an extensive prep, you're like, you should not be looking as good as you do right now, but you are just made for this and we can throw the kitchen sink and more at this and you can just take it because this is what you are made of. So Mm. I think that, again, like, many people are not being honest with themselves. And, you know, if that's okay, like, you still want to bodybuild and you still want to compete, that's fine. But I think just risk versus reward to what you're doing, and this is kind of like bringing it back to, like, say, the PD side of things and managing your own risks versus your own rewards, is that, you know, if you are not one of these genetically sublime people that are built for this sport, then is it worth taking those risks? Is it worth going down those routes that are potentially going to lead to more adverse consequences because, like I say, when bodybuilding's done, you know, and you potentially haven't got your IFBB Pro or you look back at this period of time and go, well, shit, actually, I wasted quite a lot of my life doing that. Was it worth it? You know, you don't want to sit back and go, was that worth it? No, you want to look back and go, okay, well, I did this, but it was worth it because I did it in a health and safe safe place. I did it in a productive place, and I still managed to live my life. Rather than looking back and going, I've just spent six years absolutely ruining my body, like literally hating life every minute because I've been chasing something that deep down I knew wasn't achievable. And now I just resent wasting the last six years because that, going back to what you said, that's not healthy, like in a long shot. And it's probably going to affect you far longer than the six or however many years it was that you were bodybuilding and
1: competing hmm Absolutely. And it's something that like when, when individuals I work with, even like seasoned top level IFBB pros come to me, I go, why do you want to compete? Like, why, what is it that you enjoy about this journey or you want to do about this journey? Like, what is that thing driving it? And if you were going to tell me it's the body, that's not good enough because that body you have for one day. Sometimes one hour if you did some like crazy water manipulation, if that. Yeah. So like, why do you want that? Because to develop a lean muscular physique does not require the extremes of the stage. And even if you want to be able to do that, you know, photo shoots is a great kind of outside external goal of that, you know, you don't need to take it that far and you can do it on your own timeline. Uh, I mean, a lot of times people, I feel like they start prepping and they're just so far away from that stage physique. You should be in striking distance at the beginning of prep and have been able to maintain it at the beginning of prep. Prep is not a time to grow and it's not a time to get like general reductions in body fat. It's not a time to improve your health. Like this is what body, you know, this is, this is the bodybuilding vessel that it it gets lost. I think um, in part with new people coming into competing. And I was one of these. I mean, back in the day, this was me when I was late teens, early twenties being like, Oh yeah. Like this is an attainable physique for me. It's like, no, Victoria, it's, it's not. And it's what you're, what I wanted. I realized like through a lot of, you know, very personal like dialogue to myself was like, I ultimately didn't like a stage physique. That was, I never was like, Oh, that is like
0: awesome. Yeah.
1: I, when I got really lean, like I, I, hated the way I looked and so I was like what is the is this worth it and the answer to me was was no now I don't knock people that it's a yes but know your purpose know your reason know your why and actually see if what you're asking your body to do with extremes of competitive bodybuilding aligns with what your purpose and your why and everything else is. I mean, if you're a university student, don't fool yourself and think that you can do these both things to the best of your ability simultaneously. Or if you've just gone through a divorce, don't think of this as like your your rebound kind of event that you're going to do. Like your stress levels, psychosocial, and also because of that, the biologicals interconnected. They're way too high right now yeah. for this. You know, this is not the thing you put all of your your proverbial eggs into that one basket, um, and you know the the truth is is bodybuilding healthy? No, competitive bodybuilding, I should say. Can can competitive bodybuilding be healthier? I think that's relative. Um, I think that's relative to the person. I think that's relative to their journey, where they start. And at the end of the day, optimal health does not equate to optimal performance outcomes, that there is a give and a take, and that I think we can try to make it healthier. But sometimes in the act of doing that, we actually cannot help our athletes come in as lean or as hard, as grainy as they might need to, to get to that you know top level or Olympia qualification or whatever it might be. And that is a but that is a conversation that coaches have to have, athletes have to have. We have to recognize that, recognize that it's temporary. We can push ourselves into this kind of performance zone as long as we then bring ourselves back to that health zone. And the longer we're away from that health zone, sometimes the longer we have to be in that health zone to be able to actually get back to that performance zone again. Um, and there's no time, there's no like, oh yeah, six months off season or whatever people are now saying. I'm like, no. The body doesn't keep a clock. I mean, yes, it does internally, physiologically. Yes. But like it's gonna do what it needs to do to heal and recover.
0: Exactly. And that is I think probably the perfect place to like probably wrap that up because that is that is it is balance. It's knowing when is the right time for the right form of action. And I think that is something that's probably missed the most in this because I know for myself, I've had consults come in where someone's like, Right, I want to do a show in 16 weeks. And I'm like, We're not there. Like, there are so many points that are not right. And they're like, Okay, well, I'll go find somebody else then. It's like, You're not, you're not, you're looking for bias advice that you want, not what you need to hear. And I think that is, again, like having someone on much smarter than myself, basically saying the same thing of, sometimes you just need to listen to the internal answers of what's going on before you do dive into these things, such as a contest prep or performance-enhancing drugs. You need to look at everything else around that. So beautiful way to top mm-hmm. it off there, Victoria. I love that.
1: Oh, well, I didn't realize I did that, but
0: I'm glad I did. Yeah, no, perfect. Um, I did get a couple of questions, though, so we can finish yeah. with some questions if you're happy with that. Absolutely. I will, I will bring them up what was asked so top three things someone should ask themselves or think about before considering pds
1: great question yeah oh great great question so if we're talking maybe let's narrow it to women because then i can tailor it a little bit bit more um so number one would be Are you healthy? And I'm going to use that and kind of expand on that. But are you healthy? Kind of what I talked about in the podcast. But to me, one of the things that we have to put in there is like, what's your reproductive status? Are you having a regular ovulatory menstrual cycle? Because we know that's an indicator of health. And then that also promotes health. And if the answer is no, then right away, I can say, no, you're not healthy. We need to figure out why and pursue that. So one would be like, are you healthy? Number two is, do you recognize... The unintended outcomes that can happen with anabolic androgenic steroid use or just general PED use. And by that I mean it's not just for women like, oh, uralization. Um, do you understand the long-term potential changes that you're making to your physiological, psychological, and social environment? Um, social environment doesn't always get talked about because people don't like, I mean, It's like, (laughs) my shit doesn't affect anybody and I don't care what other people think, but actually, yeah, they do because they come to me when they're, you know, done competing and go like, I don't like having a deep voice. People stare at me funny and it's like, ship has sailed. Like, sorry, you know, you might've thought you were untouchable in your twenties, but it's a bit more complicated than that. And that's where, you know, yes, who you are today is not who you're going to want to be tomorrow. Just trust me when I say that. Um, Because sometimes you don't see it until you're no longer in it. Um, And you'll be like, I don't want kids. Well, maybe you didn't want them in your 20s, but things might change in your 30s or even into your 40s. So do you fully understand the the impacts of using these drugs? Um, And number three, do you have a trusted advocate or ally on your side? because I personally don't believe it's a journey that we should be doing it alone. There's a reason why doctors cannot prescribe their own medication. Even if you're a doctor and you have that RX pad right in front of you, you cannot legally write yourself your own script. If not, we would have doctors on like barbiturates and antidepressants and everything else because human nature is, is that we want to feel good. Yep. We want to feel the best that we can. And then you mix some of like the crazy neurochemistry involved with competitive bodybuilding and everything else. And it's like, yeah, it's an, there's an addictive component to that. So I truly believe that that's, it's not a journey you should be doing alone. Um, And that having a trusted and educated ally or advocate to help you is so important. Um, And, and that also fits with like, do you have a medical professional overseeing your general health right now? And if the answer is no, I mean, don't even don't step on that 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 train yet, um, because it is so important to have that relationship established before, even if say your doctor retires or whatever else. At least you're in the medical system. At least you're getting regular, as a woman, pap smears done. At least you're getting regular um, gynecological checks. Or if you're you know over this certain age cohort or certain risk factor, you're getting your mammograms done. Um, your bone mineral density scans done general just physicals because that is so important to managing any type of medication yeah. any type of pharmaceutical substance and so have that have that in place
0: spot on nailed that like i would say exactly the same thing um so the next one i've actually done an educational video on so i'm going to pass this one mm-hmm. on to you as well so top tips on keeping acne down for a PD user.
1: Okay. So, okay. So this is going to be relative to what your acne and skin was like before you started that drug. Um, you know, that whole kind of pop culture saying of like, you know, you see a a normal vehicle and you're like, that's a vehicle. And you see like a monster truck and you're like, that's a vehicle on steroids, like that extreme, like acne does not get better When you're on steroids, it just becomes acne on steroids. Like it becomes this more extreme version, even if it's say like a full, more of like a follicular based acne versus like a cystic acne, you're still getting these subcutaneous skin changes to inflammation, to sebaceous glands, to kind of androgen binding. Then there's also some insulin components mixed in. So I think number one would be like, what was your acne or skin conditions before you started? Um, and if this was something that, say, you struggled with in puberty, but now you're in your 20s and it's been smooth sailing, recognize that. Why did you have that through puberty? Was that because your hormones were higher than your body was used to? Was that because it was the highs and lows of, you know, that roller coaster of hormone development? Because if so, we're gonna be going back there. Like, we're going back there. And so, when I talk to people about this, that's one of the things I really try to get across is like, we have to recognize the history of our skin here. Um, We have to recognize where we've come from and what are we doing to manage it. Um, I think another really important piece, too, is that often those skin changes are happening. Um, There are some like early signs that things are starting to change. Um, So, for example, um, sebaceous glands. So, your skin gets more oily. Well, the, the skin usually gradually gets a little bit oily a little bit at a time until all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, I'm super oily now. Learn and listen and watch because if you can catch it early and manage it gently, not just like eradicating, like using super drying stuff because that's going to actually create more sebaceous gland production. But if you can catch things early and start to manage it, you might be able to stop it from going into that kind of like extreme zone and um, and that's a big thing I see. Another thing with with women in particular I see is that cystic acne is connected to um, the the hair follicle. Um, so when you get this increase androgenic binding um, from you know increased five alpha reductase, we can develop. Thick, dark facial hair, and that often cystic acne is connected to that follicle. At least that's the latest kind of research, the latest theories on this. And so, um, for some acne, it, it, it is a bit more complicated than just like getting Clear Cell or whatever people use for that. Like it, it is a bit more complicated than that. Um, but I, I definitely feel like if you can find a management plan early on, we can definitely decrease the overall outcome, but then also your internal health has to still be being managed. Like getting the proper vitamins and minerals, we know that are really protective for skin, um, making sure that we are staying hydrated, making sure that our digestion and our liver function and everything else is going really well, because all of those things are also going to impact our skin. And so to kind of ask ourselves, what are we doing on that internal and that external? I feel that that is something that sometimes gets lost in bodybuilding is that, or at least fitness industry overall is they focus so much on the internal, like you can fix everything with like this cocktail of supplements or this whatever. Um, you, for a lot of times skin and hair, it's an internal external game. We all have internal things we have to do. And then there are also external things we have to do um, such as certain topical agents um, and, and the pharmaceutical world. I mean, there is some really cool things, but it totally depends person to person and what that kind of root cause of the acne is
0: absolutely and to, to kind of touch on that is is starting with the abcs like you say if your micronutrients and minerals aren't in the right place and oxidative stress is high and you know you're not looking after that then of course you're going to get those problems so you know if you're not having a well-balanced diet or you're not looking after your skin like you've said with the externals and externals like mm-hmm. yes you're gonna have issues don't just start at x y and z when you know, someone says, oh, you know, metformin is a great antioxidant, take that, that will help with skin because, okay, it is good, but are you utilizing the ABCs first? Like, is your sleep in the right place? Is your stress levels in the right place? You know, yes, you are now taking um, anabolic steroids, which is going to cause more oxidative stress. Therefore, yes, of course, you're going to run the risk of it, but what other levels of oxidative stress have you got coming in as well? So... Yeah, definitely. Um, This this, again, it goes back to the cohort that I think bodybuilders love to get into the X, Ys, and Zs of things. Like, let's take this compound that counteracts this compound because this works in in a synergistic way to this. Like, okay, but how much fruit and vegetables are you eating? Like, Mm -hmm. simple things like that just seem to go amiss quite a lot. I think so. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, and there's debates, and there's science. Is I mean, at its crux, academia, science is educated guesses that get debated like that that is what we do you could have somebody do the same experiment with the same materials in two different parts of the world and have totally different outcomes based off of their training and their environment and everything else and so science is about making the best guess that we can and then being able to support it and being able to talk about it in a um unemotional very um basic sense with another person that is challenging you. Great. Cool. So with, with skin stuff, it's like, there is so many different avenues. Like there are people that truly see milk and dairy specifically cow dairy, um, as, as being a potential underlying factor in developing certain types of inflammatory acne. There are other research that says, no, 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 we were wrong. Or maybe that's not the case. I think the important thing is to think to yourself, okay, Could this be a potential factor for me? I'm not gonna like um scream it out and like create a gospel about this thing, but maybe this could be something because at the end of the day, the research and how that interacted in that research group's bodies is gonna be different because human beings are different. And so I often tell people like just consider these things. I'm not saying this is like the linear, you know, cow's milk will cause you acne. Maybe it's gonna be based off of your epigenetics or your genetics. Maybe it's going to be based off of your overall inflammatory capacity in your body at that point in time, but it could also be something that you could try doing as a little experiment. Just see what it does. Yeah. It may have a really awesome outcome for you because I mean, bodybuilders eat a lot of inflammatory foods. So, I mean, we're all about the eggs and the milk. And so we got to be able to understand that these things may not be the case for you, but they might be the case for me and that's okay.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. 100%. Um, so the last one, um, we, we kind of spoke about contraception a little bit before mm-hmm. hitting record. Um, but I think this would be a nice one to end on. So uh, the female said, is there a particular contraceptive that you would recommend over another one for a female PED user? Or would you say it's mm-hmm. best to just stay off all contraceptive completely?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Okay, so... Yeah. Here's my, sh- my shtick on contraceptive. So... Hormonal contraceptives are only one type of contraceptive agents. Contraceptive agents, if you think about it as like a big umbrella, there are hormonal is like one major categorization and then non-hormonal is another major categorization. So when we think of non-hormonal contraceptives, these are things like the condom, the diaphragm, um, the spermicide one of the best ones would be uh, it's called a FAM method or fertility awareness, which is basal metabolic temperature. So that same thing that I recommend women doing to be able to better understand their ovulatory capacity is also what you can use to track and monitor when you are fertile. Um, and then be able to plan, you know, sexual excursions around that or use protection and it's actual, it's efficacy is really, really great. Um, so, you know, hormonal versus non-hormonal. So when we talk about non-hormonal, copper IUDs is in there because copper IUD, even though it's an intrauterine device, it doesn't have a hormonal reservoir that's say a progesterone specifically like a Mirena or a Skylena or Jaden. I mean, there's tons of different trade names and different doses and everything else have, but the, the copper IUD, it's not benign. So you are having a copper device implanted into your uterine cavity. And that by nature of what it's doing is creating inflammation. That's how it's stopping the sperm from you know, being productive and fertilizing. So when we're creating localized inflammation, it's not like it just stays there. It's not like your uterus is this, like inflammatory trap and nothing can you know, get in or out. It's, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that because often individuals that will have copper IUD will experience greater cramping episodes. Well, cramping is the, 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 at its crux, it's its um, prostaglandins, which is an inflammatory property or principle, biochemical, whatever you want to call it. But it's creating this inflammation, which then creates a reinforcement in that uterine wall. And if there's enough um, in estrogen in the environment, you're actually going to create this lovely cycle where you're going to create this just firestorm of inflammation. And that will actually cause heavier bleeding, clotting, just by having that inflammatory environment. So that's not benign to the rest of your body. Um, Furthermore, we know that because it's creating this more inflammation, it can also negatively impact ovulation. Um, It's not like you are going to ovulate every single time um, you get a menstrual cycle or a menstrual bleed when you have a copper IED in place. So now looking at the hormonal. So why would people use a hormonal contraceptive? And... I mean, at the end of the day, they offer two main things for a contraceptive purposes. One is they disallow um, ovulation from either fully occurring, because ovulation is going to create that environment. Number two is there's bleeding control. Bleeding control, though, it doesn't actually have anything to do with the contraceptive benefits. It just is kind of along for the ride. So with a, a hormonal contraceptive, whether we're talking about a implant, which is in, in your arm, typically, or a patch or a pill or a shot or a hormonal IUD. I mean, there's so many different types now. They all have a progesterone in it. And some of them will also have an estrogen in it. And that progesterone is not progesterone. It is not. So it's not what your body is actually makes. And when you start getting down into the, I mean, this is what my research is on, the deep down and dirty of them is that they don't have the same physiological benefit as progesterone. They don't do the same things for our brain, for our bone, for our blood vessels, for our breast health. They're not the same thing. It's a wolf in sheep's clothes. So you are introducing this drug into the body that not only is going to be detrimental to I mean, ovulation, even if there are certain ones that say they ovulate, I got to say the research on that is. Depends on the person and a whole bunch of other things. But um, it also is going to potentially have um, an impact on how, say, a PED is going to work. Because a lot of these progesterones, there's a a great portion of the progesterones in contraceptives that are an anti-androgen. So they are going to block those androgen receptors. Well, that's going to impact how that drug that you're to take for your bodybuilding is going to actually work. Um, Not only is it going to be potentially either not advantageous or far more risky. I mean, the risk of blood clots are already high in certain contraceptives. Then you add an androgen in the mix. I mean, not good, not okay at all. Um, And again, different contraceptives are going to have different properties. I can't say though, is one better than the other when we're talking about hormonal contraceptives? Because it depends on who are we talking about. Does this person have, a, you know, a troubled reproductive past? Have they had amenorrhea and polycystic ovarian diagnoses or were they put on pills at young ages? Because their ability to kind of like have that fortitude to be able to have that resilience is a lot different than somebody who has. And if we're talking short-term use versus long-term use, initially, the oral contraceptive pill was only approved for three to six months of use. I mean, I work with women all the time that come to me to get help after 28, 30, 35 years of being on this this substance. Um, And I mean, last but not least, the likelihood for your reproductive axes to be completely castrated is quite high on many hormonal contraceptives when we put that into the, the uh, kind of the mix of bodybuilding, that's also creating an environment where you're going to be likely to castrate. And then we're also adding in PEDs, which are going to be likely to castrate depending on, you know, if you're not using them properly, that can be really, really scary. And, And what I see in my, you know, consulting work is often it doesn't necessarily happen right away. It's like these small fractures begin to occur in somebody. Um, and, and so, you know, try to, you know, wrap this up quickly. Would I advise it, a uh, hormonal contraceptive and an androgen? I don't think we have the research necessary to decide if that's yeah. safe or not. And I think it's relative to the individual. Um, I think that if you're going to use the safest option, I mean, the FAM method is awesome. It's yeah. great. And if you want to like, double load using FAM and even a female diaphragm, awesome. You get fitted for one um, often and partner doesn't feel it and you're in charge, right? You are the one that gets to make that decision about your reproductive choice because I am still pro choice at the end of the day. Um, I I think that non-hormonal methods though, or non-invasive methods are the way to go for long-term health. If you are going to use a copper IUD, you better be tracking ovulation and ensuring that you're regularly ovulating. And if you're not then you might need to go down that road of like a cyclical micronized progesterone and you got to be managing inflammation like a beast. Because if you don't, I mean, high inflammatory environments are what breeds things like endometriosis. Um, And so it doesn't happen today or tomorrow. It might be down the road when you're just constantly creating these high levels of inflammation. 100%,
0: 100%. Well, there we go, guys. That wraps it up. Um, today's guest Victoria Felker it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Um, Victoria let the guys know where they can find you whether it's like on Instagram YouTube um, let them know where they can discover more of your stuff because it'd be a shame to not have it out there
1: yeah so my website is just victoriafelker.com my Instagram is the same Facebook is the same and YouTube I believe is the same haven't uploaded a YouTube video though in a minute um and I'm also not awesome at social media. I really just need somebody to help me with my social media at this point. Cause there's so, I've done so many podcasts and they just, they're all on my website, yeah. but I'm like, they, I need to try to find a way that I can get clips out of these things to like, you know, keep that conversation going. Cause I yeah. think it is so important. Um, I do um, consulting work right now. I take on very few clients though with that, but in the next like six months, I got some big projects I'm working on for education uh, opportunities for everybody. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, yeah, seminar, more seminars hopefully in the future too. Perfect. There we go, guys. That
0: has it, Victoria Favka. So guys, as always, thank you very much for tuning in. It has been an absolute pleasure being on your airways and your screen. Stay tuned because there will definitely be more coming. But for now, take care, much love, and I will see you all soon.
1: Recording stopped.